Please uh, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, where we continue our sermon series through the gospel according to Matthew. This morning we'll be considering verses 9 through 17. Matthew 9, 9 through 17. You know, one of the difficulties of shopping online is that you can't always get a good sense of what you're buying. Pictures can only go so far. I'm sure you've experienced ordering something online, and when it was finally delivered and you got your hands on it, it it didn't exactly meet expectations. It didn't fit right. The color was all wrong. The construction was cheap. It, it is not at all what you were expecting. You know, during this season of, of COVID, our family has been ordering groceries for delivery. And, and ordering garlic has been particularly difficult. So when you, when you add garlic to your shopping list, it doesn't offer units. So when you order one garlic, you don't know if you're getting one clove or one pound. It makes ordering garlic an exciting game. Which will it be? Well, of course, it's not just online shopping where our expectations might not match reality. Whether by upbringing or by the cultural culture around us, we expect certain things of religion in addition to our online shopping. Even if we've been Christian for, for many years, we can slip into wrong expectations of what Jesus offers in relationship with him. Outside of these doors, the prevailing attitude of religion is that it's, it's for good people. That you have to be cleaned up in order to be a religious person. And that religion is primarily a set of rules. It's, it's about austerity, of, of rule-keeping. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus and his disciples are going to interact with some religious groups. The Pharisees and disciples of John... And these religious people are finding that Jesus is not meeting their expectations. What he offers is new and so much better than what they expect. So as we read this passage this morning, pay attention to what these people were expecting of Jesus and how the reality is far better. Let's read Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, 
If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me once more for God's help? Let's pray. Father, it is appropriate as we come to study your word that we ask for your spirit's illumination. Lord, we are helpless and needy people, apart from your grace, blind to these realities. So Lord, give us sight to see the beauties of Christ, Christ who is our physician and the coming bridegroom. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's, it's helpful to start with the headline. What's, what's the big idea of the whole passage? I'd, I'd put it this way. Leaving the old behind, follow Christ into grace for sinners and joy for the sorrowful. Leaving the old behind, follow Christ into grace for sinners and joy for the sorrowful. This passage is a, a summons for us to, to leave our narrow expectations of religion And instead enjoy the fullness of what Christ offers. Healing for our greatest sickness and satisfaction for our greatest longings. At the the core of this passage is two questions put to Jesus' disciples about their conduct. Why? Asked by, by two different religious parties. Why do you associate with these people? Why don't you observe this religious duty? In answering these questions, Jesus describes himself and his mission with two metaphors. First, a doctor. Second, a a bridegroom. So we're going to have two points this morning. First, Jesus is the great physician in verses 9 through 13. And second, Jesus is the coming bridegroom. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the coming bridegroom. So join with me in in verse 9 in our first point, Jesus is the great physician. Matthew's account of Jesus continues without skipping a beat, right from where we left off, the the healing of the paralytic. Jesus has proven authority to forgive sins as the Son of Man, what we studied last week. And what we find here in verse 9 is the introduction of the author of the book we read, Matthew, sitting at a tax booth. Before Matthew became one of Jesus' twelve apostles, Matthew worked as a tax collector. Well, since the Pharisees are soon going to ask why Jesus associated with tax collectors, we need to understand who these tax collectors were and how people thought about them. Well, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were thieves in plain sight. Tax collection worked this way. Foreign tax collectors would prepay the Roman government the duties that they would collect in the coming year. And the contracts would go to the the highest bidders, who could pay the most. With those contracts, the the tax collectors would would have authority then to to go out and collect taxes, like duties on goods carried between border towns. Well, as they did that, they would often add a, a surcharge in order to pocket the extra profit. Matthew was likely just an employee of a chief tax collector, but that didn't mean that that he was liked. You know, fortunately this year, for us, our taxes were delayed, but but even in our society, no one gets a thrill out of paying taxes, right? 
IRS agents aren't exactly considered outstanding members of our society, providing a a desired service, right? Well, now imagine if the IRS was collecting money for a foreign government, a foreign oppressor. You can understand why tax collectors were despised. They were despised for their cooperation with the Roman oppressors. They were seen by the Jews as traitors. You might remember back in Matthew 5, 46, when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus needed an example of people at the bottom of the moral scale, he talked about tax collectors. Well, despite all these associations, Jesus sees Matthew and calls him to follow him, to be one of his disciples. Jesus calls one of the most despised classes of people in all of Israel to follow him. You might get a sense of why the Pharisees were surprised at what Jesus was doing. Stafford Baptist, Jesus' love is not a shallow popularity contest. 1 Corinthians 1.28 says that God chooses what is low, and despised in the world. His choice of of me, of you, is not because you met the minimum standard. You were good enough for his choice. No, you and I blew out the bottom of the standard. He loves the unlovable. Our identity as Christians is not in our worth, but the goodness of the one who loves us. We'll see more of this in a minute when Jesus describes his his mission to the Pharisees. But but note how Jesus responds, or how Matthew responds to Jesus' call. He immediately gets up and follows Jesus. He leaves behind his lucrative career to follow Jesus. Well, I want to point out two things quickly about that. First, I think this is evidence that you can trust the Bible. It wasn't manipulated. Matthew, who tradition tells us wrote this book, had had a great opportunity, speaking about himself, to make himself look great. But actually, other gospel writers include details he doesn't. Luke 5, 28, in recounting this story, notes that, that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus, something that Matthew doesn't make specific here. The authors of the Bible do not aggrandize themselves. They don't adjust the details to make themselves look better. I think that means that these accounts are trustworthy. Well, second, this is a powerful illustration of the doctrine of the effectual call. The the power of God to bring His elect into salvation. Romans 8.30, a beloved verse called the golden chain of redemption says that all who God calls are saved. It says, and those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Once you get on the the train, it's, it's a certainty. Those whom he predestined are called and are justified and are glorified. Again, Jesus teaches in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
The Father gives and they will come. Well, what Romans 8 and John 6 teach in proposition to Matthew 9 shows us. Jesus' sheep know his voice and come when he calls. As it was in your own salvation, brothers and sisters. It is now also true in your evangelism. The power to save is is not in your eloquence or wisdom, but God's call to life through the gospel. He calls, and those that he calls follow. So if if you're discouraged in your evangelism, I would encourage you to meditate on verse 9 this week. I don't promise that your evangelism will look like this, this immediate. But I do promise that God has this power demonstrated in verse 9. So let this display of, of God's power and his call be your confidence as you share the gospel. And make it your aim this week to pray for the opportunity to tell one person about Jesus' love. And as you tell them, invite them, call them to follow him. Well, the introduction of Matthew there in verse 9 is, is a point that, that he makes in, in verse 10. leads into a larger point here. We continue to read there that, that there are more tax collectors here in Capernaum along with other disreputable types. And they're getting together with Jesus for dinner. This meal is observed by the Pharisees. We're acquainted with the Pharisees, right? This, This Jewish party devoted to exact observation of their religion. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees were the example of what not to do, right? His disciples must have righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. They followed the letter of the law, but ignored the heart. So, as we read the story, we should not expect them to be on the same page of Jesus. Well, the Pharisees don't like what they see. Especially in their culture, sharing a meal was a clear sign of intimate friendship. So for a Jewish religious teacher to eat a meal with such people is is scandalous. So we see in in verse 11, as they see it, they ask his disciples, maybe with some incredulity, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When they open that Amazon package, it's not matching what they thought the item description said. I wonder, how, how would you respond if you were in their place? Why is it that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Jesus hears and in verse 12 responds with a metaphor. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Physical illness here is a metaphor for spiritual sickness. Why does Jesus associate with sinners Well, it's because they are sick. They are the ones in need of a physician. Jesus fills out his argument in verse 13 by quoting Hosea 6.6, what we read earlier in our service. It's a book that the Pharisees should know well, but they don't know well enough. In Hosea 6.6, what Jesus quotes, the, the prophet is telling us what God desires, what he wants from us, right? 
steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Sacrifices and and burnt offerings were a part of the religious ritual of the Old Testament, commanded by God. But but Hosea and, and Jesus, they're saying that they're not enough. They're not abolishing the sacrificial system. No, not not yet. But they're declaring declaring them meaningless without heartfelt repentance demonstrated in, in consistently changed behavior. So Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 13, Go, go and learn what this means. Here, the, the Pharisees who are proud of their exacting observance of the law, they're missing its heart. It's very point. Real love and knowledge of God. See, these Pharisees prize the, the observance of religious rituals over mercy. Mercy that would have led them to care for sinners. Exactly as Jesus does. They're missing the point. Verse 13 is, is one of the clearest statements from Jesus about why God became incarnate. Why Jesus was on earth. Jesus' mission, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Obviously, there's, there's some irony in what Jesus says. There, there are no people in that group of, of righteous who need not be called. But the Pharisees certainly think there are, and that they're in it. His, his point in saying this is, is to reject their expectations of, of what the Messiah should do. This is exactly why he came. To associate with sinners, to seek and save the lost. You see, in this story, the the tax collectors and sinners have have one great spiritual advantage over the Pharisees. They understand their need. Just as much as the Pharisees, they are in need of a physician. But they know it. So what about you? Christian, do you understand yourself to be a needy person? Spiritually sick? In need of healing that no doctor here can provide? You know, sometimes Christians are criticized for harping on sin. It seems that we're trying to make people feel guilty. One famous critic of Christianity, Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher who proclaimed that God is dead, put it, put it this way. Christianity needs sickness. Making sickness is the true hidden objective of the church's whole system of salvation procedures. One is not converted to Christianity. One must be sufficiently sick for it. Well, of course, he is wrong. The church doesn't make anyone sick. That's not our system of salvation. But he is. He is partly right. The only way to be converted to Christianity is to know that you are sick. You must understand that you are sufficiently sick to come to the great physician. So I ask again, are you convinced that you are sick spiritually? 
and that the only cure is found in Jesus, and that you need spiritual healing from Him every day. Well, if, if you find that in your heart, I have gloriously good news. That's why Jesus came. John 3, 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus didn't come as a religious elite like the Pharisees, maybe just leaving us an example of His perfect observance of the, the law. Not just the ritual, but, but the heart of it. No, He did far more. Jesus came as the great physician to show mercy and love, to call sinners to repentance and faith, to, as he did to the paralytic, extend the forgiveness of sins based on his authority as a son of man. He ate with tax collectors and sinners as a display of his mercy and to invite them into his kingdom, to proclaim to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you're listening to me this morning and and you feel your need of healing, the healing that the great physician can provide, let me invite you to him now. Like he did with Matthew, he calls you to, to come to follow him. Your, my resume, uh, resume of sins is, is no obstacle to his love. It is the very motivator of his mission. None are turned away from Jesus because of their rap sheet. All you need is need of him. The good news of the gospel is that, that your resume of sins is placed on Jesus at the cross. Paul says that that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. By taking our sin, he died the death that we deserve so that we might, by faith, have Jesus' resume given to us. When God looks on us in faith, he sees the perfect righteousness of his Son. In Christ, we are loved, forgiven, Cleansed and adopted, not because of what we've done, in spite of it. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. You know, because of this good news, the church should feel more like the waiting room for a hospital and less like the waiting room for a job interview. The church is a community of people who know of their sickness, who know of their need. And come for help from the only physician who can help. It shouldn't feel like a room of people who are trying to make their best impression and earn a place. Friends, true religion is not for good people. It's for people who know that they are bad and cannot cure themselves. And even though the diagnosis is fatal, Jesus took our death for us. And he has promised to one day return to take us to the place where there is no more disease, where there is no more sin. Jesus is the great physician. But even more than that, he is the coming bridegroom. So 
Look with me at verse 14 in our next point. Jesus is the coming bridegroom. It seems like at that very dinner, another religious group comes and observes the, the conduct of his disciples, and they have a question. Here, as they feast, the disciples of John ask about their fasting. Again, their question reflects an expectation of what true religion should be like. They think it should be marked by rule-keeping, by austerity. John who these people are disciples of, you may remember, came back in Matthew 3, right? He was Jesus' cousin and forerunner. He came to prepare people for Jesus' coming. So we shouldn't expect their question to be antagonistic like the Pharisees. John lived in a fast. If you remember back in Matthew 3, 4, he ate what we would call a partial fast, only locust and honey. So it makes sense that his disciples fast. John ended up being arrested and at this point is still in prison. So maybe these disciples are looking for direction as their leader is in prison. Well, they mentioned the Pharisees' fasts as well, right? We're we're not surprised that the Pharisees' fasts are known. After all, we learn in the Sermon on the Mount that they do it to be seen by others. And in fact, that Sermon on the Mount shows us that Jesus expected his disciples to fast. Remember, Jesus taught his disciples how to fast, right? To to not look gloomy, but wash your face so that no one would know you are fasting. So maybe we should be surprised here to learn that, in fact, Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Well, maybe you'd answer, well, they're just doing it in secret. Nobody knows about their fast. No, Jesus confirms. He explains why, indeed, they are not fasting. Again, in in verse 15, he uses a metaphor. He compares himself here now to a bridegroom at a wedding. The, The analogy goes like this. Weddings at the time of Jesus would include seven days of feasting. How inappropriate then would it be for the wedding guests to to fast during the wedding when with the bridegroom? Jesus here is making an analogy. He's he's comparing his time on earth with the wedding feast. It is time to rejoice. It is time to feast. You see there, though, at the end of verse 15, he expects a time to come when his disciples will fast. It says when he is taken away. Verse 16 and 17 include two more metaphors that, that continue Jesus' explanation of, of why his disciples don't fast. Basically, they they both mean that that the new pattern of of religion that Jesus is bringing is incompatible with religious observances like the fasting of the Pharisees. In verse 16, first, repairing a garment. If if your garment gets a hole, you don't put a a new, unshrunk cloth over it to patch it because in time it, it will shrink. And as it shrinks, it's going to pull that garment and make an even bigger hole. Old needs old. In verse 17, it's, it's wine in wineskins. Sometimes wine was put into animal skins to ferment, but you needed it to put it into to fresh, soft wineskins that they could stretch as the fermenting wine created gas and, and expanded. 
If you were to put that wine into to old and, and brittle skins, well, as it expanded, it, it would burst. You'd lose both the skin and the wine. All would be lost. New needs new. Well, the point, so too with Jesus. What Jesus brings cannot be patched onto old Judaism. It can't be poured into the wineskins of religious ritual. In, in these verses, the, the new that he brings is an age of, of the joy of, of celebration rather than the sorrow of fasting. His ministry, his life is a time of feasting. You know, it's, it's something like the arrival of, of spring after winter. In the past few weeks, I've been teaching our, our three-year-old daughter about how this season brings new flowers, new leaves, green grass, even new baby animals. It's a season of, of so much new. Well, Jesus' ministry is the same. It's, it's a springtime of religion. The passage here in Matthew doesn't specifically say all the new that Jesus brings, but, but the New Testament is, is full of it. Well, about the old, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Winter is gone, spring is here. Or in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish. The New Testament teaches us the old is passing away, becoming obsolete, ready to vanish. If you go through your New Testament with a a highlighter and look everywhere it speaks of what is new, you will find that, that Jesus brings so much. He brings a new commandment, new teaching, new gifts of the Spirit, a new creation, a new self, newness of life. One new man, a new world, new heavens and earth. But perhaps the one thing that describes it all best, that encapsulates all that he brings, is this. The new covenant. The new covenant in Christ's blood is the new wine in new wineskins. It's what the Bible has been looking forward to since the beginning, a a new way of relating to God that brings all the old sacrifices and temples, the smells and bells, to an end. Jesus, in his death, once for all put away sin by his sacrifice. And he brought that old system to an end. It's obsolete. He fulfilled it. He did what it was pointing to. He did what the Old Testament promised. And frankly, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, should have been expecting this the whole time. They should have been expecting a a teacher to come from God, not to call people back to obedience to the Old Testament, what every prophet before Jesus had done. They should have been expecting the one to come from God to bring the promised new covenant. A covenant marked by joy. 
So, brothers and sisters, I, I ask you, is your life marked by the joy of the new covenant? Yes, it is mixed with sorrow and mourning, but consider joy. Is your expectation of religion simply austerity, rule-keeping, fasting? Or does it involve joy in the newness of life with Jesus? Commenting on this verse, one writer put it this way. All Christians would do well to reflect on whether their demeanor, lifestyle, and words convey to others, especially the unsaved, this joy of salvation and the lively presence of Jesus. When others look at your life, do they see the spring of life with Jesus? Christians ought to be rejoicing people, even in the midst of suffering, because of who Jesus is to us. Would your family, would your friends, would your neighbors, would your co-workers describe you as joyful? I'm not talking about being extroverted or even perky. I mean deep and abiding joy. Friends, I I invite you this morning to take a look deep down. Make sure that your heart appreciates the joy of the newness of what Christ brings. If these truths do not produce joy, I don't think you've grasped them. They're not just true. They're not just good. They're wonderful. Their salvation. It is a joy to follow Christ as our great physician, as our coming bridegroom. Well, all that, all that tucked away in the answer to the question from John's disciples why don't you all fast? Because Jesus is bringing all that to an end. But as we already observed, Jesus does expect his disciples to fast when he is taken from them. He here predicts his coming death. That means the the particular feasting of his ministry will end. At that time, in an expression of the sorrow of his absence, of desire for his return, his disciples will fast. The truth is, we still await the consummation of of all that the new covenant promises. We have yet to inherit the new heavens and the new earth, even as we walk in the newness of life. Our rejoicing as Christian is already, but not yet. We still await our bridegroom from heaven. The last use of that word new in the Bible comes in Revelation 21.5. Listen to it. It says, And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. Our God is making all things new. In the end, everything will be remade by our God. 
Those that have come to the great physician for the forgiveness of sins will live forever in his grace and joy. The joy of our coming bridegroom. So, brothers and sisters, the invitation this morning is until he comes to leave the old behind and to follow great God, to follow Christ into grace for sinners and joy for the sorrowful. Let's pray. Father, we hear your invitation this morning to come to follow me. Lord, that you offer this invitation to, to all, to the lowly, to the despised, to the sick, to the needy. Father, this morning we feel our need of a great physician. That our sin cannot be cured by anything that we can do, by anything this world can offer. So Lord, we praise you for the gift of this great physician. And that in him is an invitation to joy. To the joy of, of a coming bridegroom. Lord, we long for his return. We desire to be with him in the fullness of the new covenant. To enjoy all that he offers forever in perfect grace and joy. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would come quickly. Lord, we pray all this in the name of our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.